Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to look together, beginning with 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, to the end of chapter 4, as we continue our consideration of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, in the New American Standard Bible reads this way. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing was happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what would become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In 1987, a man by the name of Aurelio Barreto III, he was not a man at the time, he was still a child, only eight years old, accompanied his father, his mother, his sister. This family had been a well-to-do family prior to Fidel Castro taking over Cuba. But with the establishment of Castro's regime, all that went away for them. And for years, actually decades, they labored difficult situations in order to escape to the United States. Barreto's father was a man who had in mind, as did his mother, a beautiful future for their two children. A future that they described to their children before they ever left the island of Cuba to come to the United States as the American dream. They began to explain what that would look like. It would be a life of great opportunity, properly seized, would lead to success and a life of wealth and ease, and fulfillment. This was instilled in the children for years. When Aurelio got into high school in Hawthorne, California, in the Hawthorne section of L.A., rather poor area, rough area, he got tangled up with drugs and partying, and he soon forgot the American dream until he sensed that all that lifestyle was not bringing him anything but further distress. So he hearkened back to the days when his father would tell him and his sister of the American dream. He began to pursue it. Without ever going to college to study engineering, he read books on his own and was able to get a job as a mechanical engineer at the age of 19. He began to do this work to support himself. He was soon thereafter married. He supported his wife. And himself, their family, began to grow. 
He was a man, however, who knew that just working for someone else as a mechanical engineer would not open the door for the accomplishment, the achievement of the American dream. He was an inventor by nature as well as an entrepreneur. And so he invented the dog loo. Have any of you ever seen the dog loo? I actually had a dog loo one time. I don't know how I got it, but I remember my dog used to sleep in it. It's a form of doghouse that's supposed to be better for your dog. Well, he invented it. He began to market it. He would go from pet store to pet store in Corona, California, where he lived. He tried to get people to take those dog loos on consignment, and they soon caught on. He had a company that he incorporated as Dog Loo Inc. When he turned 38, he was able to say, I have achieved the American dream. He sold this company and netted $20 million. But the day after he had sold his company, people had told him as he was moving toward that day that he was crossing the finish line. He had achieved what he had set out to do in the achievement of the American dream. The day after that, when he awoke, he said, I was paralyzed. He was not talking about physical paralysis. He was talking about emotional paralysis. He was so depressed, he could not even get out of bed the day after he had pocketed $20 million. Nobody knew of the condition of his soul except his wife. He was very transparent with her. It's hard to hide things from your spouse, right? Married people, you can't do it. But he was able to keep up a facade with the rest of the people with whom he interacted. Well, there was one man with whom he had become more than casually acquainted. They had become friends. This man happened to be the principal of his children's elementary school where they lived in Southern California. And as they were having a meal together, after this great transaction had occurred, his friend looked at him in the eyes and he said, You're empty, aren't you, Aurelio? And it caught him off guard. And the result of that was, he, he said, How did you know? And the man didn't even answer his question. He followed with another question. And the question was, what do you know about Jesus Christ? Well, you might be surprised at what I'm about to say. Aurelio was a moral man. Aurelio was a responsible man. Aurelio was a faithful man to his family. And this is the most surprising of all the things I've said to describe it. He was faithful to his church. He prayed every night before he went to bed. He tithed to his church. May his tribe increase. (laughs) But when he was asked the question, who is Jesus Christ? The only thing he could come up with is he is the son of God. Now, that's a correct answer, isn't it? He is the son of God. But... That's all he could say. That's all he knew about Jesus. And when his friend noted this, he dove into a presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And before the conversation ended, several minutes later, he heard the gospel of Christ for the first time in his life. And he prayed in a fancy restaurant 
being led in prayer by his friend, the principal of his children. And he gave his life to Jesus. And all of a sudden, his interest in suicide, his depression, his despair went away. Just that quickly. Because he had come to know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus came that we might have life and might have it abundantly. And Christ's love flooded his heart and radically changed his life. It was not long thereafter. Remember, this man was an entrepreneur. We have many entrepreneurial spirits in this room today, positively speaking. And he began to ask the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? He became so hungry for God's Word. He read the Bible, read the Bible, went to Bible studies, listened to radio programs where evangelical preachers were teaching and preaching the Bible. He was hungry. And he had this sense that he would like to do something to glorify the Lord with his entrepreneurial skills. The idea which came to his mind is that he would create a line of clothing, and he named it Not of This World. That's a good name for Christian kind of product, right? Not of This World. And then in addition to that, he thought, I'm going to have to open a store where I can sell this product. He gave the name C28 to the store that he opened. It stands for Colossians 2.8. And he filled the store with this product, not of this world, including accessories, CDs by Christian artists, things like that. And it began to thrive. There was a mall, and all of the stores are in malls in Southern California. There was one mall in Orange County that he really sensed the Lord would have him be there in his business. He went to the people who managed the property. He made his application. He submitted his financial report. And I mean, who wouldn't want somebody to come in and set up a business in their mall who had $20 million in the bank? I mean, that's a sure deal, isn't it? That's a good business deal. But to his shock and surprise... That he was rejected. And you know why he was rejected? Because word had reached the owners of that particular mall that this man was a Christian. And they did not want some business. And he was not trying to hide the fact that his business was a Christian-oriented business. And he was rejected. You'd be surprised at his reaction to that rejection. I'm going to hold that, and hopefully I will remember it. And if you see me getting to the end of the message... And you're not in too big a hurry to go home. Just kind of wave at me, okay? I think I'll remember it. I think I'll remember it. So what should our response be to being rejected? Because of our faith. I mean, we all suffer a certain amount of rejection. Is there anybody in here who's never had rejection at all? We all are rejected by other people. But the question is, what do we do... If we are identifying with Christ, like Aurelio did, and we are rejected because of our clear demonstration of commitment to Jesus Christ, what do we do? There are some things we can do. Those to whom Peter wrote these words, remember, were primarily non-Jewish people. Many times in the early years of the church of Jesus Christ, the first converts were Jewish 
And then, of course, Paul began to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter obviously had interaction with the Gentiles. He's writing to a large group of these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people. And their religion, they had been very religious. Do you understand that the world into which Jesus Christ came was probably as religious as it has ever been prior to His coming? It was a world that was filled with desire on the part of people to relate to some God. But their relating to God never cost them anything in terms of rejection. It was kind of like today, a plurality of gods, live and let live. You can't say there's only one way to God. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and says, I am the way. I'm not one of the ways, I am the way. And that unsettled the whole world. And these people who came to Christ were not accustomed to being rejected for identifying with Jesus. But that changed. We know what Jesus said the night before he died to his apostles. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. It's inevitable. It's normal. If we really follow Jesus, if we really identify with him, we will have trouble. It's possible that people can say they're Christians and maybe really are Christians, but they're not willing to express their faith and they don't have trouble. At least trouble that's a result of their identifying with Christ because they're people who have bought the lie of the devil and the culture that it's okay to be religious, just don't talk about it in public. Isn't that true? It's becoming more and more true here in our country. So, what did these people do? Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. Stop being surprised actually is what the grammar would yield. Stop being surprised at the fiery ordeal. The word translated fiery ordeal literally translates a word which means burning. Do not be surprised at the burning among you. Let me stop here just a moment. Has anyone here ever been burned? I'm not talking about burned in a relationship. I'm talking about physically burned. It is incredibly painful, isn't it? I don't know if it's the most painful thing which can happen to a person, but it doesn't miss it much. Those of you who have suffered burns know that. The word translated burning was oftentimes associated with the fiery trial that a piece of metal would go to to purify it and to reveal its true nature or character. And that's what's in the mind of the Holy Spirit exhibited through these writings of Peter. Do not be surprised. Stop being shocked. That's our reaction many times. We're shocked when we get the kind of reaction that Aurelio got when he was rejected. And he goes on to say, which comes upon you for your testing. Testing to see what your true nature is. What is your character? As though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not strange. I've already said it. It's normal. It's part of the package. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, will suffer persecution. You want to be godly? Well, sure you do. If you know Jesus, you want to be like Christ. You will suffer some degree of persecution. We follow Christ's example. We follow Jesus. And we do as He says. 
We say what he says, and the result is we suffer. And so one of the possibilities is, of course, we will be shocked. Have you ever had that experience? I remember when I was young in the faith and I was raised in a very warm home, great acceptance of me by both of my parents. And then after I came to Christ, I wanted to tell people about Jesus. I started to, but I didn't always get such a warm welcome. I was just a boy. And even as a boy, sometimes I would feel rejection. And it shocked me. It surprised me. Now, here's another possible response. Look at verse 16. Anyone, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. And here again, the construction of the grammar is stop being ashamed. If you suffer as a Christian, some people would make you and me feel ashamed if we suffer. They would say, what's wrong with your faith? If your faith were strong enough, these things would not be happening to you. Well, just pause a moment and think about whose example we are to follow. And actually, who are we to follow? We're following Jesus, correct? And the result of our following Jesus is we're going to experience some things that Jesus experienced. And we're going to have trouble. We shouldn't be ashamed. We're going to see in a moment quite the opposite is true. If we have experiences of being rejected, instead of being ashamed, we should be grateful. We're going to see that in just a moment. And you're thinking, oh no, here we go. Thankful for suffering? Well, just hold your horses and we'll see what the Bible says about that. So here are two reactions that are normal. Probably most of us who have experienced this, if we've sought to identify as a Christian, we've experienced shock when we're rejected. We've experienced shame when we've been rejected. So what is the right response when we have such situations in our lives? Well, here's the right response. I want to quote a verse that's in the book of Philippians. It's Philippians 1.29. Philippians 1.29 says this, It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Christ. Whoa. It's a gift, we know, to believe in the Lord. And the word translated, it has been granted to you, is the word from which the word that's translated gift in the Bible when it relates to the gift of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We know that word as charisma. This is the way in which this verb sounds. If we speak it as it would have been heard, this is the way it sounds. Charizomai. It has been granted to you. It is a gift to you. Salvation is. And we would all agree on that. But also, it's a gift to you to suffer for Christ. Now, I was under the impression, and I'm sure you have been too, and I still am of that viewpoint. It's not just an impression. It's not an opinion. It's the clear teaching of Scripture that what Christ did on the cross for us is something that can never be added to. It can never be improved upon. So, what does the Scripture say when it says we have been granted the gift... Of suffering for Christ. 
Well, think about what Jesus said to the Apostle Paul. The first things which came out of his mouth when Paul was struck blind on the road to Damascus with a piece of paper in his hand that gave him the right to round up all people who were descendants of Abraham, who lived in Damascus, who had identified themselves with Jesus Christ, and take them back to Jerusalem, I suppose, and put them in jail and bring them to trial before the Sanhedrin. Remember what Jesus said? Very simple. He asked Paul a question, who was Saul, that was his Hebrew name, Paul his Greek name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus. Well, Paul had never, as far as we know, ever seen Jesus. So how could he be persecuting Jesus? What he was saying is very obvious. When we persecute followers of Jesus, when we persecute the church of Christ, we're persecuting none other than Jesus Christ himself. That's what Jesus was aiming at. And think what Paul says later in the book of Philippians. He says, I want to know the Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection, His life. I want to know what it's like. Now, Paul had already known that, but he was still hungry for more. I want to know the Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. Now, follow carefully. We, who know Jesus, when we suffer what would be considered unjustly, when we're persecuted for the sake of righteousness on account of the name of Christ, our identification with Christ, when this happens to us, we are part of the body of Christ and we share in the sufferings of the church, which is the body of Christ. Jesus is pained when His people are mistreated. And make no mistake about it, Jesus is not one to hold a grudge, but He's going to bring to justice all those who have been hateful to His church when He comes again. We know when Jesus comes again, He's not coming as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's coming as the Lion of Judah. And He's going to exercise judgment upon all those who have opposed Him and opposed His church. So, these are the things that we can do in response to persecution. What are they? Three possible responses. Shock, shame, and then sharing in the life of Christ and the very sufferings of Jesus Christ. Suffering of this sort is a gift. Now, how is that so? What evidence is there in this passage and other passages of Scripture that suffering for Christ in the name of Christ is a gift? Well, it's a gift because it is purposeful. There is purpose behind it. Let me just talk about that for a moment. Remember these fire, this fiery ordeal which comes upon us because of our identification with Jesus Christ is for our testing What happens is that this kind of suffering proves some things. First of all, it proves the legitimacy 
of our relationship to God as his children. Look at verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of glory and of God, that's a long way of saying the Holy Spirit rests upon you. If you are slandered for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you suffer this way, you are blessed. And it is evidence that you are a child of God. So what we need to take away from this is that when we identify ourselves as believers, we are unashamed of the gospel, unashamed of Christ. We identify and sometimes we get rejected, we get persecuted, we are mistreated. What that does, it shows that we are people in whom the Spirit of glory, the Spirit of God dwells. Now think about the role of the Holy Spirit. There are several things which he does, but one thing that I want to pinpoint because it relates to this particular matter is this. In John 15:26, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit will bear witness of Jesus. And when the Spirit is in you, you want to tell people about Christ. You want to share people with people the gospel of Jesus. You want your friends, your families, others whom you may know in your community or just run into. And the Lord impresses you to share Christ with those people. You cannot keep it to yourself. So that's one thing. Suffering legitimizes, in a sense, that we are true children of God with the Spirit. Romans 8 9 says... If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in him or her, he or she does not belong to Christ. We have the Spirit in us. And it surfaces when we're able to have the kind of response that God would have us to have in a matter where we're being persecuted and suffering for the name. Here's another thing. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, the Bible says that our being disciplined by God, suffering, if you will, is a picture of the fact that we are legitimate children. So we see evidence in Scripture, in this text and elsewhere in the Bible, that it verifies that we are truly children of God. It proves that we're children of God. But it also proves God's love for us. And you might say, well, God really has an odd way of showing His love to us. Well, let's do some thinking about that assertion. It's truth. It's not simply an assertion. Let's see what the Scripture says. If we were to go to the book of Psalm, the 34th Psalm, in the 19th verse, this is what we would read. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. That whole idea of affliction is a big idea in the Bible. Not just in the Old Testament, it's also in the New Testament. In the book of Psalm 119.67, the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I learn your statutes. Now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, the psalmist goes on to say in 119.71. And then in verse 75, he says, in faithfulness, this is the kicker right here, listen. In faithfulness, you, Father, have afflicted me. Now, how does that show the love of God? This is how it shows it. 
In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 5, quoting from Job, chapter 5, this is what the word of God, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He does that and it's purposeful because we are legitimized through his disciplinary action and his love is also proven by his disciplinary action. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. God says this in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10. He said, I tested you in the furnace of affliction. God places us in testy situations in order to refine us. The Bible talks about the whole idea of refinement in the book of Proverbs 27, 21. It says, the crucible is for silver, talking about the purifying of ore that has silver in it, burning all the dross off, all that refuse off. And in the furnace of affliction, we are tested in the furnace of affliction. God is the one who tests us in the furnace of affliction. If you can begin to grasp this and understand that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. To understand that God knows the end of things we only know up until now in our lives. What we do know is that God will complete the work which He began in us. As we read from Revelation chapter 2, did it strike you as interesting that the Scripture says, Jesus says to this church, I know your tribulations. And your poverty. And then in parentheses, in my translation, it says, but you are rich. Now, how in the world can my tribulation and poverty result in my being rich? Well, this is how. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, the Bible says that Jesus, who was rich, became poor on our behalf in order that we who are poor might become rich. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. When it's all said and done, these things which we associate with the world and we equate with rich style of living really are going to be meaningless as we work our way through life. Think about the illustration that I began with. Aurelio, a multimillionaire. A young man and empty to the point of wanting to take his own life. It didn't do it for him, did it? But Christ saved him and he infused him with a new purpose for living. Instead of living for himself, Christ's presence in him gave him such a richness of life. Remember, Jesus came that we might have an abundant life. That means a life that's rich internally. Eternal life is internal life. Before people come to know Jesus, they have a void in their lives. Jesus comes and by His Spirit takes up residence in our hearts. And the result is, all of a sudden, regardless of the circumstances of our lives, there's this new life infused into us. And we can look forward to a great life. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. I tested you. In the furnace of affliction. And then in Psalm 34, 19, the last part, after having said many are the afflictions of the righteous, 
the psalmist writes these words, and the Lord delivers them out of them all. That is the promise of God we cling to. And we know it in our own experiences if we walk with God. He delivers us out of those kinds of situations. The book of Daniel tells about the young man Daniel, a great man of God. Young man. We don't know how young he was. Probably late teens, early 20s. He's such a great model for us to think about when we think about what it means to really follow the Lord. He seems to be flawless. We know he was not in the book. He actually records a prayer where he's confessing his sins to the Lord. He was a sinner. The person that you know whom you think is just about perfect, forget about it. It's not true of her. It's not true of him. Because we all still deal with sin in our hearts. But thank God, in Christ there is no condemnation, right? No condemnation in Christ Jesus. But in the book of Daniel, we are introduced not only to Daniel, but the three of his friends. Their names, at least the Babylonian names which were given to them to replace their Hebrew names, to try to erase in their consciousness the fact that they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar was the emperor of Babylon, and in effect the whole world, the most powerful person in the world at that time. And to display his own greatness, he ordered that a statue 90 feet high, that's a tall statue, 9 feet wide, should be erected on the plain of Dura. And when people would hear a certain sound trumpeted by Musicians, if they were in earshot of that, they knew that they were to bow down toward that image, which represented none other than Nebuchadnezzar himself, and worship. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were aware of this. And what happened? They'd already been enlisted into the service of Nebuchadnezzar. They had done good work for him, but they did not bow down. Word came back quickly to the emperor about the disrespect that these young men exhibited. So he called for them. They came in and he said, Don't you know that I will throw you into the fiery furnace if you don't bow down right now and worship this image? And they said, it's awesome. They said, Sir, we will not bow down. Our God will deliver us out of your hand. But if he does not deliver us, It's okay, we're still not bowing down. Well, you know the story. They refused to bow down. And then what happened? Well, Nebuchadnezzar ordered some of his strongest, most valiant soldiers to take these men. He also ordered that the fiery furnace that was the fate of those who did not bow down, it was heated up to seven times the normal heat. And these men bound these three young men, these soldiers bound them up. And they went to throw them into the furnace. And when they got there, those men incinerated. Whoa, that's hot, isn't it? They just burned up. As these three young men were thrown in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar was watching all this transpire. And as he looked in that, he's talking, I'm sure, to some of his advisors there. He says, hey, I see these three men walking around in that fire. And then, look, there's another person in there who looks like, and most of the translations translated, a son of the gods, but literally it's the word, a son of Elohim, 
which is God. This is the word that's used throughout the Old Testament. And he didn't know what he was talking about probably, but what we do know is that was a pre-incarnate presence of Christ in there with them. The Bible says in Psalm 34, 18, right before 34, 19, remember what 34, 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 34, 18 says this. It says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So when people are in distress, guess who's near? The Lord is near. He was near to these young men. And so Nebuchadnezzar said, I've got to call these guys out of there. So he gets as close as he thinks it's safe to get to that fiery furnace. And he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. And when they came out, a remarkable thing was discovered. There was no hair singed on their heads. Their clothes, they had worn trousers, what we would call a tunic. They had a head piece on And none of that had been bothered by the fire. They did not even have the smell of smoke on them. The only thing that was different when they exited was that the ropes had been burned off. The ropes which had bound them had burned off. Now, think with me a moment. What might that signify? When we go through times of testing... In God's love for us, He knows that we will never progress until we get unbound by those things which are keeping us from moving forward in our growth as followers of Jesus. Jesus is with us. Jesus is the consummate friend. Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves, but I have called you friend. And by the way, James helps us to understand what real friendship with Jesus amounts to. The Bible says, Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness and called Abraham his friend. So what makes us friends of the Lord? Where we believe the Lord. We trust the Lord. And the result is, we are people who are set free like these men were. Do you see... How God's love is proven by our suffering for the name of Christ. I hope you see that. Look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Our sins were judged fully and finally when Christ became sin on our behalf and died on the cross. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8, 1, where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. It's all gone. Thank the Lord for that. It's all gone. But, remember, God disciplines those whom He loves. So when we walk through this life and we experience some discipline, especially when it's associated with our identifying ourselves with Christ, it's useful to us to have some of those things which bind us to be burned off so that our devotion to the Lord is full. This not only proves our legitimacy as children of God, I'm talking about this kind of suffering for the name of Christ, it also proves the love of God for us. It protects the glory of God too. The Bible speaks of the glory of God in this passage. Let's just begin with 14 and 
We'll skip 15 and go to 16. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 16 says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. We glorify God when we properly understand and respond to these kinds of rejections that we suffer in this life. We bring honor to Him. And God is one who is jealous of His own glory. The Bible says in Isaiah 48:10, we've seen it, I've mentioned it twice already, I'll mention it a third time. God says, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And then in verse 11 of Isaiah 48, the Scripture says this, My glory I will not give to another. The Lord is jealous of His glory. He's created us for His glory. You might say, that's pretty selfish of God. He's a glory hog. Well, please understand why you were created. You were created for His glory. And the things that have occurred in your life apart from Christ, have contributed to your demise and your downfall. When Adam sinned, the glory of God left him. It's strongly suggested in Scripture that prior to that, God lived in Adam and Eve, and then He vacated, and the glory left. The light went out. There was darkness where there had once been light in the spirit of Adam and Eve, and it went out. And the result was all kinds of selfish behavior followed the extinguishing of that light. So here's the question for us. Are we people who understand why we're here? For the glory of God. That's what Aurelio began to understand. He was not here for himself. He had it all wrong. The American dream is not something we should aim for if we're going to be people who find final fulfillment and peace. It's God's vision for us, and that is that we be restored to a place of glory. We need to understand that the suffering has a way of keeping us from robbing God of His glory. It prevents that from happening. The Apostle Paul talks about something which he struggled with. He said, it was given to me to have a thorn in my flesh. We don't know the exact nature of that malady. Some kind of physical malady probably. Three times he asked Jesus to remove and each time Jesus said, no, no, no. And then he goes on to explain why I was given this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, so that I might not exalt myself. Now, be honest with yourself. I don't know many of you very well. And I could speak well of most people, I'm sure, in this room. If I really knew everybody, I could speak well. I could find things that are positive about you. But one thing is true of us. We don't handle success very well when it comes to worldly success, do we? It's very difficult. It goes to our heads. We exalt ourselves. Now remember, Paul was already a follower of Christ, but he still needed some modification of his life because he still contended with his own selfishness, just like we do, even though we are redeemed. And to the degree that we give in to our own selfishness, we deprive God of His glory. And He does not take that very kindly. He is one who is intent upon preserving His glory. Not only does this process of suffering prove certain things about us and about God, it 
prevents God's glory being robbed by us from him. But it really prepares us for heaven, too. Look at verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So also, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Now, what is that all about? The revelation of his glory. In Romans chapter 8, I just want to read four verses, 16 through 19, and listen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed, now look, if indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Wow. That's it. Paul speaks of this in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says... This light momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He goes on to say, we are different. We are now people who are not limited to look at the things in this world. The things in this world are temporary. The things that really count are eternal. So we take our eyes off of the things of this world and we see the trouble that comes to us. And it, it is painful. Let's be clear. It's painful to suffer because of our association with Jesus. <coughs> but it's got an end to it. It's going to end. And God gives us a break from it in this life usually. But sometimes people leave this life. That whole question unresolved. When's it going to end, Lord? But those people are people, if properly taught and they understand and apply the truths of God's Word about who God is and what His purpose for our life is, the result is that it has something in it, that understanding and the commitment to that truth that helps us to deal with the difficulties which we face. Now, I'm going to finish with some things from God's Word. Three that come out of this passage. One borrowed from another part of the Bible, but it relates to what we're talking about today. I want to finish with this set of positive applications. How can we do it? Well, the first and foremost thing is found in verse 19. Look at it. Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful Creator. There's the beginning point. I am to keep on entrusting my soul to a faithful Creator. In this time in history, there were no banks to speak of. And so when a man who had a certain amount of means was going to go on a journey and did not want to take all of his money with him, he would take it to a trusted friend and he would say, would you please take this? I'm entrusting it to you for safekeeping. And the cultural norm, not just in Christian circles, but in Greco-Roman world, was the person who said yes took those and would not let anything happen to those resources. So when the man returned from the journey, he could hand it back to him. We have done that to God the Father. Do you think God will keep our souls? Yes, He will. 
We need to keep on entrusting our souls to our faithful Creator. Knowing that He loves us and He has a plan for us that's positive. Here's the second thing I would like to draw your attention to. Not only are we to entrust our souls, but we are to delight in His Word. The Word of God is so important to understanding things, isn't it? It's wonderful to really think about what the Scriptures teach about any number of things, not the least of which is the subject we're talking about today. In Psalm 119, 92, the psalmist has been talking. We looked at three things he said about affliction and what it causes in our lives. And then in 92 of Psalm 119, he says this. He says, if your law, which means teaching, so I'm going to substitute the word teaching, if your teaching had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Delight in the teaching of God's Word. That is where we find encouragement. That's where we find hope in the Word of the Lord. So, in addition to entrusting our souls to our faithful Creator, we delight ourselves in the teaching of Scripture. Here's the third thing. We rejoice in the Lord. And you're thinking, boy, this is really hard. And it is hard. Look at verse 13. But to the degree that you have the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. We're to rejoice. That's what the Bible says. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. In the book of James, the Bible says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Keep on rejoicing. We can rejoice because we know we have a sovereign God who loves us and He is using our lives. I know One thing that's true of most people here today, you want your life to matter. When it's all said and done, when your epitaph is written, you want your life to count. Not just for time, but for eternity. Rejoice at what is yours in Christ. So here's here's the fourth thing. Do what's right. Look at verse 19 again. Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. That's what this book really is about, the book of 1 Peter. When you look at chapter 2, we won't look at it, verse 12, the whole purpose is to inspire us to do what's good in response, especially to rejection from people who don't know Jesus and don't know what they're doing, really. They think they're doing people good. They're doing people wrong and God wrong. Well, I want to go back to where I said I would end with Aurelio Barreto III. When he was denied access to this plush Orange County Mall, he was rejected. In his former life, he would have gotten his litigators together and they would have sued Probably. But he didn't do that. You know what he did? He got his close associates together and asked, would you join me in a 40-day season of prayer so we can hear from the Lord about how we're to treat this situation? You know what happened? Got them together. They prayed. And the Lord didn't give them direction to retaliate via suing. But the Lord opened a door in a nearby mall where they could open another store. It's God's way. Do what's right. 
Look at the book of 1 Peter. Read it. Remember, these people were in an anti-Christian environment. And they used a different set of principles by which to operate. We are in the world. The world is against us. We're not to retreat from the world. We're to infiltrate the world. We're to be salt and light. How can people know Christ if we're not there living the life out before them? Loving our enemies. Praying for those who persecute us. God wants us to understand this. A man by the name of Mr. Hebert has written a great commentary on 1 Peter. He makes this comment. He says, The Christian life is indeed a happy life, but it is a costly life. It does, doesn't it? It costs us. We have to deny ourselves and follow Christ. One more thing. A book by, the man, by a man named Paul Bilheimer. The title speaks for itself, really. Don't Waste Your Sorrows. Many of us have wasted a lot of our lives after we've come to Christ feeling sorry for ourselves, grousing, complaining against God. Please understand, the way to victory is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him, that would mean you and me, For the joy set before Him endured the cross. We have no idea the pain that Jesus endured. But it was for the expectation of the promise of God to be filled in His life after He had died. Thank You, Lord. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord, for not simply talking about this matter, but living it out. And thank You, Jesus, for living in us. Thank You that we're not left to our own strength to deal with these challenges which are monumental in many cases. But Lord, Your Spirit in us will give us the way, give us the strength to deal in the right way with our problems. Thank You, Lord, for what You do through suffering in our lives. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen. God bless you.